This is God's word. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak round you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Thank you so much. Please do keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 12. And uh, needless to say as well, we will be seeing more of each other increasingly as the weeks and months and in the goodness of the Lord years to come uh, if our uh, mutual interest in advance, etc. There's anything to go by, we will, you know, be officially partner churches together. So that, that's exciting. And I've been really, uh, really blessed getting to know David in, in a far deeper basis over the last uh, year and maybe two years, I suppose now, since we first went to a conference together. And uh, we believe that the Lord has uh, orchestrated that ultimately um, for our, our joy as pastors and for uh, the joy of our, our respective churches as well. Uh, let me just pause and pray for us as we come to the, the Word of God now. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to your sight. O oh Lord, our strength 
and our Redeemer. Amen. Five students find themselves in London on a hot July Sunday morning, and they want to make use of their time there by going to hear the most famous preacher in the land. That man's name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You may have heard of him. If you haven't, you need to repent, but you may have heard of him. They didn't know what he looked like, and and upon arrival, they they were greeted by a man who began to show them around uh, the wonderful church building. And in the midst of the tour around the building, um, this man asked them, do you want to see the heating plant of the church? Now, it was a very hot July morning in, in smoggy Victorian England in London, so they were not really anticipating wanting to go down to the actual heating room of the church. It was already warm enough in London. But they, they felt compelled just to be courteous. It was their first time there and they didn't want to offend the man on the door. And so they agreed. And the man led them down a flight of stairs. And he approached the door and opened the door. And within this room were 700 people praying before their morning service asking for a blessing upon God. And the man turned around and whispered to them, this is the heating plant. The man then introduced himself to the students and they were uh, shocked to find out that his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The heating plant, or more popularly known today through the writings of people like Pete Gregg, etc., the boiler room of the church was the prayer meeting of the church. Spurgeon knew the significance of what empowered everything as it relates to the effective ministry, the gospel outreach, the vibrancy, the health, the life of the local church. And this passage in Acts 12, which was read for us a few moments ago, beautifully illustrates what I'm referring to as the power of a praying church. Now, hopefully, as we we look at this together, this will not be too strange to you as a church if you've been here for the last number of months. Uh, Two series are being combined here. I know you did a series recently in Acts, at least thematically, as you saw with a spirit-driven, gospel-centered community and mission looks like. And then Dave has also recently done a, a series on prayer. And so we're combining prayer and Acts here this morning, and these two hopefully come together in a, in a convergence that will be, be helpful to us. So I did a PowerPoint and a quote on it that, that I'll be reading out shortly. I forgot to give it to Dave at the start of the service, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along. Let's first of all consider a contrast of actions in verses 1 to 5. There's a contrast of actions. That's how the narrative opens up. Verses 1 to 5 show us a contrast of actions between Herod in verses 1 to 4 and the church in Jerusalem here in verse 5. Now the Herod in question is the grandson of the Herod who was on the throne when Jesus was born, the Herod that, or that gave the go-ahead to the slaughter of all the babies when, when Jesus was, was born. So he has evil stock in his ancestry. He's the grandson of that Herod. He's also the nephew of the Herod Antipas who executed John the Baptist. So there is history with this family. And we read that he has violent hands. Literally what the text is indicating that hands reached out with the deliberate intention to cause harm to the church. And we read that James becomes... A martyr. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
So James now becomes the very first apostle, not the first Christian, that was Stephen in Acts 7, but James becomes the first apostle, that James who who left his father's nets with his brother in the Gospels, that James now becomes the first apostolic martyr. Now, you'll notice something interesting about verses 1 to 2, and that, that is this, no reason is given for his death. You know, when Jesus was promising his apostles their persecution, and I deliberately phrased it that way, he was promising them the persecution was coming. In that upper room discourse, he said a very interesting thing. He said this, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And this is what he said. In relation to his own persecution, he says that it was in fulfillment of of an old psalm, they hated me without cause. And they are now following, his people now are following that, following in suit. There's, there's no explicit reason given for the killing of James, but this is what we do know about the persecution. What we do know is that it continued because in verse 3, he continues with the persecution because it pleased the Jews. You put someone in a position of authority who is more driven by people-pleasing and winning the crowds more than operating their political power based on truth and conviction and justice, chaos will ensue. And here's a guy now ruling, and because he is winning, the Jews, who don't forget, aren't really up for Herod ruling and the the political mixing with Rome, that these guys don't really want this kind of form of government. But the fact that he's winning the Jews here, he continues this persecution And then he imprisons Peter. But the thing is, he only imprisons Peter because it's during a Jewish feast of unleavened bread. And they don't want any executions to taint this very holy time. And so Peter would have been killed. Only, and as we're going to see, acknowledging under the providence of God, he is put in prison until this feast is over. And in verse 4, he's put in prison. And a rotation system, you can see a very sophisticated rotation system of guards. We're going to come back to that soon. Uh, waiting ultimately for execution to happen. So there's Herod's actions in verses 1 to 4. Let's contrast his actions with the church in verse 5. But, verse 5, Peter's kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's focus in on that word, but. It is significant in the narrative for two reasons. The first reason is to emphasize the contrast. Herod is doing this, but the church is doing that. Herod is all of this, but this is what the church is doing. So so John Stott, in his really helpful commentary, says this. Here then were two communities, the world and the church, are read against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer. Let, let me tease out the illustration. It's a boxing ring. In the one corner, you have Herod. And this is what Herod weighs in at. He has position. He has power. He has personnel at his disposal and he has recent popularity amongst the people. That's Herod in his corner. That's what he weighs in at. This is what the church weighs in at. There's a little house group and they're praying. That's the contrast. So which is more powerful? What's going to win the fight? Is it Herod and all his power and all his cronies and all the people cheering him on? Or is it this little group 
And they're talking to a guy that you can't see. And they're bowing their heads. Or if they're continuing the Jewish posture of prayer, they wouldn't be bowing their heads at all and they wouldn't close their eyes. They would do exactly the opposite. This is how the Jews prayed. Arms up, eyes to the sky, eyes wide open. Who's got more power? Or let me indeed contextualize it. What is more power, the seats in Parliament or the seats in the prayer meeting room? What is more power, the faculty at a university mocking the Christians on campus or the Christian union that meets in campus to pray together and have Bible studies? What's more powerful? What's more powerful, the left-wing mob fighting capitalism, the right-wing mob fighting immigration, or the church that prayer walks around the community? Which group is more powerful? And you see, here's a second reason for the word but. It's hinting at the winner. You think of how this little word is often used in construction. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It changes everything. Right? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he may take you and sift you as wheat. But... I have prayed for you, and when you return, strengthen your brother. So, Herod, he's got him in prison. He's waiting to be executed. But the church made earnest prayer for him. You see, it would be very easy to think that out of these two groups of people, Herod is the confident one. And, and the church is the one that, you know, is so uh, just reactionary and they're not really too sure what to do. But take a little closer look at the text. I think the opposite is the case. And here's the two blocks of evidence for me. The first one is this. We have already discovered that the reason why Herod is doing what he's doing is because he's people-pleasing. He's already enslaved. He's not free at all. He's just enslaved to what people think. Here's the second reason. Did you notice... The elaborate, the elaborate security around Peter. All the squadrons of soldiers were about to see. He shackled between two guards. When at the time, one guard per prisoner was enough. It's almost as if, this is like Hannibal Lecter, right? Because the more dangerous the prisoner, the greater the security. It's almost as if they're thinking, we need to make sure this guy doesn't get out. Now, why would they be thinking that? Well, Back in Acts 5, we don't have time to turn to it. Back in Acts 5, Peter and his apostles were in prison. And something pretty weird happened. An angel came and released them. (laughs) I wonder, I just wonder if God would be willing to do that again. They've learned from their previous mistake. We We need to heighten the security because there's something interesting about this group that we are putting in the prison. Now, before we move on, I do think it's also important to notice the word or the phrase, earnest prayer. But the church is praying for him. But in what way was their praying? They were in earnest prayer. Now, the word and its definitional meaning carries the idea of ongoing, continuous prayer. That's why the authorized version, uh, King James, I don't suspect there's many people using that translation here, but if you do, maybe the new King James, uh, it, it carries that idea that prayer without ceasing was being made. That's the phrase that's being translated. The word is also used by Luke 
In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it's part of a compound word, the combination of two Greek words. And it refers to the praying of Jesus in Gethsemane. When he was in agony, he prayed all the more. In other words, the use of this word by Luke in its definitional sense means this. This is how the church prayed, with ongoing, continuous intensity. In other words, when the church got together, it was not merely, could someone pray for Peter? And then we'll have our pancakes. No, no. They labored continually on this particular point. God, you need to do something. Peter has been arrested. They've already killed James. Don't let it be too so quickly. Ongoing, intense prayer on behalf of their brother. This is not a domesticated prayer meeting. Do you know that when the writer to the Hebrews is describing the prayer life of Jesus. Do you know how he describes it? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers to God with loud cries and tears. Then there's an amazing phrase. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now that is really interesting. And I would submit it is counterintuitive to what we think in our churches. Because what do we associate with reverence today? Deathly silence. When the writer of the Hebrews says there was reverence in the prayers of Jesus and it was anything but silent. And isn't it interesting that out of all the things, the apostles never once asked Jesus, teach us how to exercise demons and teach us to preach. What's the one request the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to do? Teach us to pray. There was something about the intensity and the unction and the power of the prayer life of Jesus. And this evidently is carrying on here now in the book of Acts. In fact, when you're introduced to the church in Acts chapter 1, praying for the day of Pentecost to come, the idea is that there is a united, passionate prayer meeting. So Foundation Church, let me, let me throw out this challenge to you. When you meet on Tuesday the 20th of August at 8 p.m. for a prayer gathering, what will your prayer meeting look like? Will you raise the roof? Will you be passionate and intense and continuous about the prayer needs or will we just play middle class, respectable Christianity and have nice wee prayers? Now, please don't get me wrong. God's arm can't be twisted. It's not the louder your prayer, the quicker the requests. But there's still a principle in the text that is there a deep, deep desire to see God move. And that's the picture of the prayer here. There's a contrast of actions. Let's move on now. Secondly, to a miraculous answer in verses 6 to 11. A miraculous answer. We know that in verse 3, Peter is arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for a week. We need to think about this for a minute. This means that Peter has been in prison anywhere for a couple of days, up to an entire week, depending on when he was arrested during this feast. But when does God choose to deliver him? On the very last night. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for more than 10 minutes, you will be aware that he does not give a rip about your timeline. He doesn't care about your timetable. Woody Allen once said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. His, his time scaling is a totally different, totally different way. So, here, so picture this for a minute. The church could have had one, they could have just been praying for one prayer meeting and you know, waited, well, 
don't think God's going to deliver him. There's no way they're going to deliver him. Let's just, you know, commit him to the Lord and he's probably gone and he's going to a better place. No, no, they're pressed through here and God's timing, we would say, is lastminute.com. But as Gandalf would say to Frodo, a wizard is never late and never early. He always arrives on time. And here now, last minute, we would say, God now moves on the very last night. Tell me this. If you knew you were in your last night on earth, and you're arrested. We know Peter has a mother-in-law, so he's a wife, probably children. How would you be that last night? How would you feel? You'd be thinking about your family. You'd be thinking about all the what-ifs. Your son or daughter, you wouldn't see married off. Your grandchildren, you wouldn't see. Is Peter worried in this cell? He's sleeping like a baby between two guards. Now notice this. Is this not a beautiful picture of the peace of God that passes all understanding? Because notice this is flowing out of the praying in verse 5. In other words, as the church is praying for Peter... It isn't merely that God answers by delivering Peter. We're going to see that. But even prior to the deliverance of Peter, God is pouring grace into Peter's life to sustain him in that difficulty. We we get so obsessed about the deliverance, but we actually forget that Peter needed to be wakened up to get delivered. It's amazing. And not only, I don't know how many deep sleepers are here. How do you know you're snoring? You get a dig in the ribs. Well, what does the angel have to do? The bright light into the room is not enough. The angel has to give Peter a kick in the ribs to waken him up. He is in a deep, deep sleep. And the angelic support sent from the Father comes to him. John Patton was a missionary to what is known as the New Hebrides of the southern hemisphere off the coast of Australia. And there's a very well-known documented incident in his life where the, the people that he was trying to reach with the gospel were cannibals. There were tribes people. There were just Uh, on a totally different cultural, uh, social moment than they were trying to reach. One night, they're in their building, him and his wife, and the tribes people came out around the building in order to burn the building and kill Patton. And him and his wife did all that they could. They got on their knees and prayed. They prayed all night, and the night came and went, and the tribes people left. But a year later, the leader of that tribe was wonderfully converted And of course, Patton never forgot that night. And he asked this tribe's leader, that night you circled our building. We were the only ones in that building. Why did you not burn the building and kill us? And he answered, because of all the tall men with swords circled around your building, we could not go near it. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. God, heaven was prayed into that situation. So the Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way, an angel may have fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. An angel may have fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. In in an interview with Nine Marks Ministries, interviewed by Mark Dever, Ian Murray was talking about his favorite historical figures and his, he's well known for his biographies of people of the past. 
And it got to a stage in the interview where Ian Murray was talking about the difference between the old leaders in the church and their understanding of the power of God in prayer. And this is what Ian Murray says. And this has come from Ian Murray. If you don't know anything about Ian Murray, he is not what you would call charismatic. Okay? He wasn't associated with Martin Lloyd-Jones. I had an awful lot of time for Martin Lloyd-Jones. Love Martin Lloyd-Jones. Didn't agree with everything Martin Lloyd-Jones agreed on, on the, the personal work of the Spirit. I, I have to say, unlike myself, he does. But this is what Ian Murray says, and it is very, very telling. So you can't label this charismatic. I would say you have to label it biblical. Worldliness in the church is the number one enemy. And that comes when we have unspiritual people and we have unspiritual people too often because they're nominal Christians. So they have the language, they have the outward, but they don't have the power. So Paul's words, the kingdom of God is not of word, but of power. Now he goes on. The whole school of Edwards, that's Jonathan Edwards and Archibald Alexander, Princetonian and so on, they believed in the power of religion. You know, men candidating for the ministry, and listen to this, and the minister saying, can he pray down the Holy Spirit? Imagine that question today, Ian Murray says, can a man pray down the Holy Spirit? It's not perhaps exactly the sentence that we would say is completely correct, but you know what they meant, because when those men prayed, the Holy Spirit did come down. What a challenge, church. What a challenge. Here is the church praying and begging God to move and heaven comes into this cell. And as the rescue continues, you can see Peter. Peter doesn't even know what's happening. It isn't until after the angel goes and now he says, hold on a minute, now I know that the Lord has sent his angel. It's like Psalm 126. When the Psalm 126 remembers the return of the exiles, and they were under, it would seem that they weren't under God's um, evident blessing. They're in Babylon and they celebrate coming back to the land. And there's this lovely verse. When the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dreamed. I can't believe how good God has been. I want to say, I'm believing this for foundation, guys. I'm believing that for foundation. That you will look back at a, at a turning point in a moment where you can say, I, God has been so, we feel like, we're dreaming how good he's been, that he has met us in our desperation and in our praying. And I'll say more about that now in the closing point that we look at. We've looked at the contrast of actions. We've looked at the miraculous answer. And now finally, let's look at the unexpected arrival in verses 12 to 17. There is a touch of comedy about this incident, isn't there? I love the humanness of scripture because the picture is this. Peter goes... He knocks on the gate to get into the house. A little girl, Rhoda, comes and she's so shocked to see him, she forgets to let him in. And she runs back into the prayer meeting to let them know that Peter's outside and all the while he's remaining outside knocking, trying to get in. I, I, I wonder if you notice something really strange about the church's reaction. Do you notice how robustly supernatural the worldview of these Christians was? It's not, it's not Peter. It's his angel. Wow. I mean, we'd have no problem saying Rhoda was out of her mind, but we'd be willing to say, actually, it's his angel. It's his angel. They, 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 they had no problem with the concept of angelic visitations. Jesus talks about the angel of the faces, uh, the, the angel of his children before the Father's face. Now, that doesn't mean we, we start worshiping angels, we start, you know, kind of 
desperately longing to see them in everything. Scripture does say that you've God's people often encounter them and not know they've encountered them. Book of Hebrews says that. But the, the, the worldview of this early church was evidently that when we're praying, stuff in the physical, there's also things in the spiritual and the unseen realm that gets manifested. But I also want you to see as well, these guys are praying for Peter's release. But according to their reaction to Rhoda's news, even though they've been praying for Peter's release, what are they not expecting? Peter's release. You ever hear theology that says, unless you've got such and such a faith, God can't move? Here's a church, and although they're praying intentionally, and although they're praying passionately, and although they're praying continuously, there's a little niggle in their mind that this isn't going to work. And when Rhoda comes back to say he's out, they're like, I dead on. I can know we're, we're praying for him to get out, but he's not out. That's, that's amazing. That is so encouraging. And let me tell you why that's encouraging. Because some of you are here this morning and you're looking back and it's like, we've moved, we're in Ashfield, it's all going to happen, but it hasn't happened. And you're going through the motions and you're almost about to give up. God breaks open the cell and he even does amazing things when you're not expecting it. So here's the challenge. Isaiah 64 remembers a time when, when, when they pray, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. And they remember a time when God did something when they weren't expecting it. So here's the thing. Church, please hear me in this. Always, always, always posture yourselves in the position of obedience to be ready to receive. Because if you be like, you may just actually miss out on a blessing. Always position yourselves in the, in, the, in the place where you're ready to receive. These guys were not even expecting it. And you may be struggling, you know, with, you know, we're actually down a member now and we've lost a member. And listen, guys, these guys had lost James. And these guys thought they were going to lose Peter. Do not believe the eyes of the enemy that just because something negative has happened or bad has happened, that that's going to be the rest of the story. You know, when, when Moses was obedient... You know that obedience means, obedience always means disillusionment, by the way. Obedience always means disillusionment. There is no saint in scripture who obeyed the call of God. He didn't go through seasons of disillusionment. So Moses is, and that's just condiment, was in the notes. Uh, that's for someone here this morning. So when Moses goes in obedience to the Lord's commands, go to Pharaoh, what happens? Pharaoh makes life more difficult for the Egyptians. And then Moses comes back to God and says, I thought you called me to deliver them. He's made it worse. And then the Lord says, now you'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. Sometimes God allows things to go down a little bit before a breakthrough comes in. And he's always using a faithful remnant who are seeking his face. What do you do with Gideon? You've got too many, Gideon. Imagine that for church growth. You've got too many. I want you to start with some smaller. Or Elijah. He, he, he sees a great power of God and then what? Disillusionment sets in. Jezebel's on his case. It is just constant. John the Baptist in prison. Should we look for another? Because I'm not too sure this whole Messiah thing is really you. So friends, see the amazing power of God with a praying church whose faith isn't actually 100% in their praying, which actually shows us something. What we're resting on is not our ability to tap into prayer, but on God's ability to work wonders. That's always our hope. So on the good days, on the good weeks, on the good months, or on the days where we're dry, or we're frightened, or we're disillusioned, I love how this passage ends. 
in verse 17. If we were to read on, in fact, we would see how the one who killed the apostle at the start actually gets killed by God. But I love how verse 17 ends because what's at the heart of this? What is this prayer meeting about? It's about the mission. Because what, what does Peter do as soon as he gets home and lets everyone he's out? He's away again. He's back on mission again. So you might be thinking, well, John, I, I, I get the principle. I get the spiritual little things you've done. But like, I mean, a prison cell, that doesn't really apply to us. And I would submit that it does apply to you. And let me tell you why. How can you be like Peter to, get, to be so, so focused on the mission that God's called you to? How can you be like Peter to do that? Well, I would submit you need to realize and remember that you're like Peter. Isn't it amazing that Charles Wesley, when he was wanting to glory in the gospel with his most famous hymn, and can it be, out of all the passages of the Bible that he wants to remember, the salvation of God in, it's everyone's favorite verse in Anne Canopy. What does he touch? What does he use? He uses Acts 12, doesn't he? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth. And follow thee. Why can you pursue in prayer and wait in a posture of obedience for God to move? I'll tell you why. Because he's already broken you out of the prison. He's already broken you out of the dungeon. He's already loosed you from the domain of Satan, sin, and death. And so, foundation, pursue him. I, we are believing with you. We pray, Dave said you pray for us regularly. We have been praying and we've been intensifying those prayers on an increasing basis. When Stuart and I meet together as elders every week, we remember Dave and the church. We, we, rem, we are in this with you. And maybe you feel like you're, in, you're like Peter in the prison and everything else. Let us be even that church praying when you're even so weak, you can't even pray for yourself. That's what, that's what gospel partnership's about, right? I've got what? Have I got time for one story that this was in? The no Even if I don't, I'm going to say it anyway. Because um, I wasn't going to share this, but IGM, it, it, something related to this. There's, there's a story of modern deliverance. There's countries in the world, of course, and you're aware of this, human trafficking's rife. One such country, a major tactic is this. The traffickers hire women to lure the young girls. Because if a man's the front face, they'll obviously be caught out much quicker. So they pay desperate women to allure these young girls into slavery. And this is what they do. They gather young girls from the poorest of the poor. And they promise them, I can get you a job in the city. You'll be housed up in a lovely apartment. We'll, you'll make a lot of money. You'll make money enough to be able to send back home to your mum and dad. And this, you know, this girl is introduced to the parents. And they think it's all good because a, a girl wouldn't do this to another girl, right? And lo and behold... They are duped, and these girls are on, on blindly going like um, sheep to the slaughter. Well, in one particular country, I'll not, I'll not specify it um, because the missionary that I heard this from didn't want it specified. They, they realized that something was wrong. Their little girl had gone off, and they hadn't heard her in weeks, and they realized that they have been duped by the traffickers. They were in a very, uh, the first protocol that they would go to with the problem is go to the local witch doctor. And he, they're already a poor family. He takes money off them to contact the ancestral spirits and the, to get the little girl. And so uh, what does a poor family do when they give in more money and don't get any answers? Well, they're even more poor. So the next protocol was to go to the local Buddhist 
priest and he was unsympathetic and no hope whatsoever. But they were told about a man who knew a God. This is a pluralistic kind of ancestral spirit, shaman culture, Buddhism. So they have no concept of a personal God, but they heard of a man who knows a God. That's all they were told. And he lived in a village two days walk away. So they make a two days walk to a man who knows a God. They're desperate, for goodness sake. Their girl has been kidnapped. They walk two days to a village and then they discover that this man who knows a God has multiple churches, congregations, and villages spread days away. He was in another village another day away. So they walk a third day to get to him. And they arrive and they finally meet this man. They're introduced to him. And he asks for a photograph of their daughter. Well, they don't have a photograph on them. So they walk three days back again to their house to get a photograph. And they come back again and they meet. So this is over a week now again, just trying to find the pastor and get. So they meet the pastor again, finally with a photograph. And this is all the pastor did. He puts the photograph of the girl on the ground. He lays hands in the photograph, he lays hands on the mum and dad and prays something to the effect of sovereign Lord. You know exactly where this little girl is to the glory of your name. Will you return this little girl to your parents? That was it. No bells and smells, no potions like the witch doctor, no chants and rituals. And they went back home totally deflated. He knows a God. <laughs> the very next day, a lorry is traveling through that country, crossing the border into another country. In the back of this lorry are girls, human slaves. Their daughter is one of those girls chained in the back of this lorry. For an inexplicable reason, the driver loses control, crashes the lorry. Both the men in the front who were bringing these girls died on the spot. Every single girl survived in the back, broken bones and bruises. Within a couple of days... Within a few days of that pastor praying that prayer, this little girl is delivered and brought safe back home. The story goes on. Because when the pastor finds out this happened, he makes his journey toward the home to see the little girl and to see the parents. And this is the first thing that the mother said when he walks through that mud hut. Who is this great God? And he leads them to Christ. And another church has found it in that community. Who is this great God? Foundation, he's your God. He's your God. He's our God. He's the God of deliverance. And this is the power of a praying church because it's not our prayers that have power. It's our God who has all powers. So position yourselves in a place of vulnerability and seeking him to see his power at work amongst you. May God bless you and encourage you through his word. Go ahead, Dave. Yes, certainly. I'll pray. No problem. No problem. That's ironic, isn't it? That's me. (laughs) Father, who is sufficient for these things? But Lord, if there's been anything of your Holy Spirit's witness in this text, and Lord, if I've impacted the way I should, then truly the voice of God has been heard this morning. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that not only you would open our eyes, but you open up our hearts, constrain our wills. Lord, I pray for those that are discouraged. Pray for those that feel that they're hanging on by their fingernails. 
that, Lord, they would see the glory of your word in this text and the glory of your purposes. Father, I pray you would stir hearts. I pray, Lord, that there would be momentum in this place. I pray, Lord, Lord Jesus, you are the foundation of this. And we, we rest on the foundation, but we also build upon that foundation. The purpose of a foundation is that a structure is built upon it. And that, Lord, you would build the, the bones and the sinew and the muscles and that there would be a vibrant body on mission as they already are doing, Lord, but increase their faith. Increase their faith, O God. Increase their joy. Pray against the enemy. His servant works in effects who try to dismantle faith, who tries to sift faith, who tries to kill faith. We lift our eyes to the hills and where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, let this church be able to say with that psalm, Psalm 126, we were like those who dreamed and those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And I I read that psalm this morning, friends, and I wrote a little phrase beside, I don't even remember writing this, must have been months ago or years ago, renewal only comes through tears. Renewal only comes through tears. And as you continue to sow, oh, continue to do so. And the reaping of the harvest is on its way. And it might not be in the timing that you thought it was, but our God is in the heavens. He's doing all that he pleases. He is good. He is faithful. He can be trusted. And we know he can be trusted because he's delivered you from the ultimate prison. And he set your feet upon the rock. Lord, as we respond and we take bread and the cup and all of that, as David lead that later on, Lord, as we reply in these songs of victory and praise, Holy Spirit, write your word upon our hearts. Never let us forget this. May we go out of here knowing that we've met with God and been changed by your grace. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen and amen.